There's something magical about whales. Their size, yet their grace. Their mystery, their, their intelligence, their... Everything about them. And... We've talked a little bit before about their lives. About how they communicate, about, about their size. And, and we're not necessarily done with that. In fact, fairly soon here, because this is September, we are going to be having an episode that's dedicated to the story of whales, where they came from, why they exist, how they evolved. And it's an amazing story. But here is a question on the flip side. When a whale dies, what becomes of it? That is what we set out to find out today. But it ends up being so much more. Hey everyone, Devin Boker here, and you are listening to The Wildlife, a podcast that explores nature's untold stories and wild secrets, and the lives of the people who study them. The Wildlife, if you don't know, is also a nonprofit. We're an organization that's dedicated to removing and, and circumventing barriers of exclusion that work against people of color, LGBTQ+, and other underrepresented or underemployed groups and doing so through a lot of different programs, aside from free educational content through the podcast and the blog, but also community programs and funds for professional development, as well as a binoculars for young birders program. You know what this is? This is episode 61. 61 without Ryan Reynolds. And if you're not familiar with why we are saying that, here's why. A while back, in fact, about a year ago, some students of mine, because I'm also a high school science teacher, said that we should try to get a celebrity on the show. And after a very long conversation that went in roundabout ways, it turned into we should get Ryan Reynolds on the show to compare and contrast Hugh Jackman's Wolverine with that of real life Wolverines, something that most people don't know a whole lot about. So Ryan, if you're listening, which you probably aren't, maybe somebody's listening who by chance happens to know Ryan Reynolds, also we're going to tag you on Twitter, hey, hit us up. We'd love to chat. Before we get into it, hey, patrons, this is a heartfelt I love you to, to each and every one of you. The people who support us at patreon.com slash the wildlife, our other half of the symbiotic relationship that is us. So the biggest of thank yous to, and I'm going to try to one breath this, 
Andrew Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Cyber, Bridget Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancox, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Boligo, Whitney Vandevere, Zach Stednick, April Blinsky Kimia, Kim Jolay, Karen Bergman, Terry Peterson, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin Brown, and Rosie Bailey. Boom. You bunch are the fruit to our loop, and we couldn't do this without you. Like I said at the top, it is seep timber. Yes, that is a pun. If you thought my other puns were bad, just wait until you see mine. <laughs> Get it? Get it? Anyway, a month or so back, I had the opportunity to sit down for a conversation with today's guest, and it left me absolutely spellbound, wonderstruck. As I mentioned at the top, this started as an attempt to follow the journey of the body of one of the ocean's most fascinating creatures after their lives have ended, but it became an expedition to the deep sea. We talk hydrothermal vents, shag carpet, whale falls, blobfish, zombie worms, fish on stilts, see-through skulls, scientific colonialism, exploding whales, and honestly, there is just so much in this episode that I can barely even come up with a comprehensive teaser. It's just that much. Today's guest is a Trinidadian British deep sea biologist working at the nexus of science, policy, and communication. She studies the weird and wonderful animals living in a range of deep sea habitats and how our actions are impacting them. She participates in expeditions around the world and has an extensive SCICOM and outreach record. She's also a Pew Bertarelli Ocean Ambassador and a co-lead of the DOSI Minerals Working Group a scientific associate at the Natural History Museum in London, and a director and founder of Species, which is also kind of a pun. I love it. It's S-P-E-S-E-A-S, which is, it's just, it's like, it's like, it completes me. She has honestly done so much amazing work that I don't really feel that I could come up with an intro that does her justice. So I'm gonna just get to it as fast as we can. So get ready for a deep dive to a dark and mysterious place. Take a break from the crippling pressures and darkness of life during COVID, depressing enough, for a different kind of darkness and pressure, like like a three to 9,000 pounds per square inch kind of pressure at the bottom of the sea. It's time for Whale Falls in the Deep Sea with Dr. Diva Amen. Have you always been interested in science? Um, I think not necessarily science, but definitely nature. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up in the Caribbean, we have, of course, beautiful weather. And in Man, yeah. I spent loads of time outside in the sure. garden and mm-hmm. um, in the natural environment, beaches especially. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of like instigated that love of the outdoors. Um, and then from that, I think this love of science and especially biology may have evolved from that. That makes sense. I think we we hear quite a bit of that where yeah. maybe not so much with other sciences, but when it comes to more of the biological sciences, the first real connection was, you know, just with with nature itself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember your first real connection with nature? It's interesting that you asked that question. I, I may not remember the first, but there mm-hmm. are definitely some very early ones that had a massive impact on me. Mm-hmm. 
I think I was less than four, I'm pretty sure, because my sister wasn't born. Um, but there was the dead manta ray on the mm. beach. And that memory has just like stayed with me. And then another one is, um, I remember my dad bringing a starfish for me. As oh, well. cool. Again, before I was four, just to like look at. And, and I mean, it's really rare to have memories from before you're four mm -hmm. years old. Isn't that like, I don't know. I don't think I have many of those, but most of them seem to be based around the ocean and nature. Yeah. Which probably makes me sound like some kind of weird hippie. <laughs> no, I, I think, unless maybe I also sound like a weird hippie, but I, I think for me it's, it's largely the same. And then I talk to my wife and she's like, I don't really remember anything from that age. Why do you remember yeah, some of the things? Right? I'm like, oh, but we went hiking and like I have all these outdoors kind of associated stuff yeah so, yeah yeah is she a scientist no she's a english teacher mm, mm -hmm. interesting yeah when did you um find deep sea biology like when did that become your thing so i have this again a really early memory my my i had this animal book growing up mm -hmm. um from an extremely young age and it had loads of different animals in it and it had this little like two pager. I'm not sure whether it was they were specifically that was a two pager on the deep sea, but there was a couple pages that had like hatchet fish and anglerfish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't think I ever really like associated them with the deep sea. They were just another type of fish in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, despite the fact that I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, where um over 65% of our area as an island nation is deep ocean. And oh, for wow. a lot of island states, it's way higher, like sometimes like over 95%, wow. right? Um, and, but yet still, I had zero connection with the deep sea, apart from, you know, if I would go out on a boat, which happened mm -hmm. often, um, I would wonder about what was down there. Sure. Below, you know, past where we could see. But that was kind of it. And it wasn't until um, I went to university in England in my last year, I took a deep sea biology course. And that was when things sort of read that, that whole so like side of science was awakened at, because it, yeah, I think for most people growing up, at least around the time when I did, which was, you know, 20 years ago, um, there, there really isn't that awareness of the mm -hmm. deep ocean. I mean, why would there be? It's, yeah. it's not an environment that most of us will ever interact with. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, it's funny you mentioned anglerfish. My son lately, there's this new thing on Google where if you look up certain animals, it'll pull up in like an augmented reality 3d version of that what? animal that you can look at in your room. And he's been obsessed how have with... I, oh my God. How have I not known this? I, uh, yeah, it's I'm, only I'm like... literally fighting the urge to Google this immediately. <laughs> it's maybe like two dozen or so different things, but anglerfish are one of them. And so you can like put it in the middle of your room and look at it through the camera on your phone and then you know, <gasps> turn it around and interact with it a little bit. And my son has just been obsessed. And so he's always talking about anglerfish now. And and it's just been, it's been a whole thing. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's park the Google thing for a second because that's <laughs> incredibly awesome. But I mean, anglerfish generally are awesome. I mean, they have their own sort of light source, which yeah. is epic. 
and they have this whole incredible you know sex strategy which yeah just it's one of my favorite deep sea stories yeah aren't they the ones where like the male yeah. like just kind of melts in yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> That's crazy. Exactly. He bites onto her, it triggers this weird enzyme like reaction, basically, and his lips fuse to her, and all of his internal organs begin dissolving, their blood systems fuse, and that's how he spends the rest of his life, basically <laughs> attached to her, providing her with sperm. I mean, you so, don't get much more charismatic than that, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> so the definition of clingy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, what if you were if you were to give advice to a younger you about this field, knowing what you know now, what what would that advice be? Oh God, I hate this question. <laughs> um, I mean that it's not easy mm -hmm. to start with. I think. Um, I mean the the field is a bit of a hard one to describe because yeah. there are so many different avenues within it, right? Like there's mm -hmm. academic science, there's conservation science. Um, and then there's related policy, communication, yeah. um, and, you know, I think each of those has its strengths and mm -hmm. weaknesses, but I would say that it's really not easy. It's especially not hospitable to a person of color, a woman of color, mm -hmm. people from developing countries to deep sea science that yeah. is. Um, and, but you know despite that it is you do get to see like and experience remarkable things and that kind of makes it all worth it but in terms of advice you know i'd i don't want to like lessen the incredible status that doctors have especially in today's day and age but mm -hmm. you know i would i would say that if you're thinking about a career in um, anything to do with the environment, you know, it's, I think we really need to sort of like take it quite seriously and not trivialize it because yeah. just as, you know, if a doctor's prescribing medicine and it has to do with someone's health, I think ultimately it's the same for environmental scientists, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the, um, whether we are, we are answering scientific questions or we're trying to get those answers put into policy, you know, ultimately it all plays a role in our health, our well-being, and us being here on the planet because the ocean is and the environment is so integral to that planetary function. That was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's a good answer, though. I mean, we, it, it touches on a few different things that we've spent a lot of time on recently. Um, you know, we, we recently uh, founded as a nonprofit with the with a few different initiatives that we're trying to get off the ground mm -hmm. at the moment. But um, we have spent a lot of time talking about the importance of science communication uh, yeah. in, in really not only just communicating findings, but communicating how science is done and how it works and what it's yep. actually like. Yep. Um, and also a lot of about barriers of exclusion that keep different groups out of science. And, and yep. like you said, you know, hospitable, it's, it's not exactly hospitable. Um, and so how do you alleviate some of those barriers, remove them entirely, get around them, you know, how, you know, so we, we've been spending a lot of time um, really diving into that in conversations with people. It's, yeah, yeah. it's been really interesting. And I mean, not to trivialize any other um, uh, uh, fields of science and, mm -hmm. and, ha and the, 
the issues related to each of those, because of course there will be issues that are overarching and stretch across all of all parts of science. Yeah. But then I think each sort of niche of science has its niche issues as well. Mm -hmm. And with deep sea science, given how incredibly expensive it is, yeah. um, and that's because of the technology we need, it needs to be incredibly high tech um, and the ships especially, um, there's, it means that a lot of those issues are really amplified because there just hasn't been the access that's mm -hmm. been needed on top of those issues related to, um, inclusivity and equity, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so. so I, I'd, I'd say one of the, one of the biggest, maybe irony is not the word, but like tragedies of my life is that, um, I'm fascinated. Life, oh God. Yeah, it's just I am fascinated by the water. I'm fascinated by the ocean. I grew up in uh, Texas, kind of on the coast, and always was drawn to it and learning about it, and you know, watching BBC Earth shows about it. But I'm also not the strongest swimmer, and I'm also terrified of deep water for that reason. <laughs> so it's like the supreme thing of like I want to go to there and I would love I would give anything someday to go down in a submersible and and to just have that experience but I would also be completely terrified out of my mind the entire time so it's it's you know it's it's a whole I thing I think that's the situation with a lot of other people though you know it's like <laughs> I mean, there is a difference between, you know, appreciating something and like actually wanting to go there in what is, you know, still quite a rare experience that, you know, there's not many people on the planet who've actually been down there. And yeah. um, I think while it's been mostly, I mean, 99.99% safe, um, yeah, there is this irrational fear with the unknown. And I feel the same way about space. You know, I would never say no to going into space, but oh my God, I would be terrified. Right. <laughs> I'm in the same boat with that one too. It's just, oh, the open, it, yeah, it's maybe it's the unknown. Maybe it's the random exactly. stuff scraping your feet yeah. and that you don't know what it, well, I mean, that's the unknown right there. So it's the unknown, but you, you've seen some stuff that few other people have seen and you've gone on some incredible expeditions i was going through a ton of your stuff kind of creeping uh, a little bit but um <laughs> honest admittance of creeping love yep, it <laughs> yep. and I, I just have to ask i know it might be hard but what's what's been your favorite what's been the most fascinating or, or the strange strangest thing that you've seen yeah that is so damn hard to answer um <laughs> I, yeah, really, really hard to answer, but a couple, uh, just a couple things that like spring to mind. Mm -hmm. um, brine lakes are just one of the most epic things in the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when uh, basically water that is three to eight times saltier than the surrounding seawater, because it's denser, it sits on the seafloor. Wow, and essentially crazy. creates a lake in the deep ocean on the seafloor. <laughs> and often these incredibly well-adapted mussels um, form this sort of shoreline around the lake. And it's amazing. You're driving over it with, you know, the RV or the submersible. And there, the, the lake is actually like rippling below you, just <laughs> like a normal lake would. And it is, yeah, just bizarre that's that's one of the one of my favorite environments to see for sure 
I mean, hydrothermal vents, there, yeah, these places in the deep ocean where super hot chemical rich fluid um, gushes from the seafloor often. Mm -hmm. And in some places, it's over 400 degrees Celsius. Oh, wow. And when it's that hot, it um, on its journey up into from the crust into the water, it's it's um, cause all these metals to dissolve from in the crust of the earth. And when it meets that cold deep ocean water, it causes all of those metals to suddenly percolate. And it means that you end up with something that looks exactly like black smoke gushing out of these almost like oh, wow. And when I say gushing, it's like a, it's like if you imagine the most polluting factory in the world <laughs> gushing out of the, you know, the chimneys. That's exactly what it looks like. Obviously not the same, but it's <laughs> exactly what it looks like. And um, yeah, it just that that fluid is what powers these really unique ecosystems that live around these environments where animals have zero reliance on the sun or on, you know, the primary production in the surface and on land that we all rely on from plants. Um, instead, they're actually able to make their own food using the chemical energy Gosh. in fluids and something called chemosynthesis. I've got to take a moment here, and, and you should too. Just just think about this. Think about this. It's it's a part of the world that's so dark. There's, there's no... There's no real light. There's so much pressure. There's no plants. There's no energy from the sun. We can't, we can't really fathom that. Like we think we know darkness, but even in darkness, we have stars and the moon. And even on the nights when that is blocked out, we still have light. We still have energy from the sun. We still have plants. We still have oxygen. We still have, imagine a world out of the sun's reach. Imagine a world where the sun doesn't shine, where the sun isn't powering everything. In a way, indirectly, you know, as, as phytoplankton in the surface layers of the water are photosynthesizing and releasing oxygen and, and have these massive booms in population and eventually die and rain like a snow to the bottom of the sea. And these other animals like whales, you know, of course, a lot of their stuff, technically speaking, in an indirect sort of way, but also a direct, comes from the sun and are then made of the sun. And when they die, they go to the bottom of the ocean and they start a cycle anew. But even still, even, even still, it's just a complete absence of, of that type of life it's scavenging and predation and chemiosynthesis it's just a different world it really is like an alien planet and you know the funny thing about that is it's actually most of our planet so in a way we're the aliens in fact, actually, in a very real way, going down there in subs like UFOs, I mean, come on. And it's just these perfectly adapted um, animals that are weird, but also just incredibly wonderful amidst this 
you know, gushing black fluid and these, the seafloor is usually like full of metal. So it's like browns and coppers and oranges. Wow. And it just really is this incredibly sort of alien like yeah. landscape, um, but also incredibly rare as well. Yeah, just, I mean, the deep ocean is just full of incredible things. And I honestly wish more people got the opportunity to um, to see some of the things down there and, and especially to be able to experience it as well. I, I'm always interested by the, you know, you see these dense clusters of different species all hanging out by these vents. And then mm-hmm. my, my first question is like, so where did they come from? Like, were they or were there some by another vent and then some were like oh i guess i'll just go <laughs> out on my own <laughs> right so this is one of i mean so little of our deep ocean has been explored we've characterized like such a small percentage of the life in mm-hmm. the deep ocean and and that's just like the most fundamental question that we're still trying to answer right like what's there much less questions about the ecology of all these animals and that point you raise you know how do these animals move between these very isolated deep sea habitats in some cases um and how do they well we know they do that via their larvae in a lot of cases but you know what how do the larvae know where to settle in this massive deep sea space like the Mm -hmm. the most vast space on the planet how do they find that needle in the haystack yeah. and be able to settle it and carry on life? And it's just one of the biggest mysteries that still remains for pretty much all deep sea life. Isn't that fascinating? And in, in one of these one of these pockets, not just hydrothermal vents, but one of these pockets of life and biodiversity is these uh these whale falls, as they're called, when a whale that doesn't wash to shore sinks, falls to the bottom of the sea. And we're going to talk about that right after this break. It's time for book club. Um, first of all, can I join your book club? Because yes, <laughs> I definitely want to. We'll talk about that after. Um, in terms of books, um, Great question, and I wished more interviews asked this question. Um, but oh, okay, so related to the ocean, a great one is Sex and the Sea by Mara Hart. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the ocean and sex, come on, you can't get a better combination. <laughs> um, but then, you know, going down the science route, there are just so many books that have came, come out recently that are just brilliant. Um, yeah, Emperor of Maladies is all about cancer excellent um invisible woman um Mm -hmm. just one of the best books i've read this year definitely um both of angela saidi's books so inferior and superior are all about um sex in um sex and science as well as um race and science Mm. Um, and those are both like, yeah, again, just really eye-opening. Um, I'm currently reading The Uninhabitable Earth, which is incredibly beautifully written um, mm. and informative, but soul-destroying because it's <laughs> all about climate change. And <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really powerful, but also just you kind of feel to just weep into your pillow. Um, but in t- not related to science, I mean, coming from the Caribbean, there's just 
so much great literature that comes out of the Caribbean. Um, Marlon James, a fantastic one, Book of Night Woman, like one of my favorite books ever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also One Year of Ugly. It's by a, a good friend who's actually just published it. It just came out this week, I think, or last week. Um, and again, like just, there's lots of really great Caribbean literature and, um, highly recommend. And also, yeah, as I said, lots of great science literature, which I'm sure you guys know. What's the last book you guys did? Um, we're right now we are doing, um, uh, why am I blanking on the name? Oh, the first brain, the neuroscience of planarians, um, by Dr. One Pagan, who we had on the show, uh, about a month ago, month and a half ago. Right. Um, that was our most recent and also sting or something i'm i'm for some reason cannot think of book titles this morning but it was that's a, it okay. was about that's okay <laughs> it's about the researcher who um basically created the scale the sting pain scale uh of, of different insects by actually Stinging letting himself down. get stung yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i have read about yeah. it. i have not read that book but i have read about it yeah yeah, very interesting stuff. No, yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots of great science books. I just find sometimes it can be quite, like when you've had your head in science all day, sometimes it's a bit hard to like jump into bed and power through a nonfiction yeah. science novel. And then also during like the lockdown, the uninhabitable earth has been quite hard to read because I'm like, what else is going <laughs> to go wrong with the world? <laughs> See, that sounds like just the uh, the right kind of like, you know, self-torture for right about now. Like, <laughs> I feel like I, I end up reading books like that all the time. And, you know, so so one of the things that we've started incorporating more in our book club is just um, if we if it's related more directly to science, great, but it doesn't have to be. But things that are more social justice centered because it's so important to kind of incorporate those ideas with science. And so one of our current ones is how to be an anti-racist. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so it's it's very much like, you know, sometimes we're sitting there and we're looking at the books that we're doing. And we're like, gosh, you know, like if if you think about it, this is all kind of depressing. Yeah, <laughs> it's all very good and important information, but gosh, like and I feel like books, books, books should be an escape. But yeah, yeah, yeah. This depends on your front mind frame at the time, I guess. Pretty yeah, much. yeah, yeah. I think maybe this, you know, COVID stuff that you know especially here in the US. Oh my gosh, it's going on too long. You guys have had a lot to deal with recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And then- Hi there from the High Coppers crew. High Coppers mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves and to nature. From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails. So, one of the one of the main reasons that we wanted to chat today, it all it's kind of a I'll explain. It started because a couple weeks ago, <laughs> I was reminded of a story that I had first heard about probably middle school, maybe in high school, okay. where it was this video, I think from like the 1970s of this whale that had washed up on a beach and it was dead. And the yeah. town was like, well, what do we do with it? Let's <laughs> blow it up. And yeah. 
you know, they put a whole bunch of TNT around it, which was, of course, a horrible idea. And it, if like, anybody has not seen this video, Google it. It's crazy. Uh -huh. And yeah. And then I heard recently, it was like uh, maybe a month ago, I was listening to the radio and I heard that they had turned that area into a park and we're calling it like Exploding Whale Memorial Park. Yeah, I saw park. this on Twitter today. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that is crazy. And then it got me and my co-host talking. We're like, okay, well, other than like washing up on a beach, like what normally happens when a whale dies? I mean, that's such a large organism. Where does it, where does it go? Where does it end yeah. up? Yeah. So, I mean, the majority of whales, not just whales, whales, big fish, uh, turtles, like manta rays, you know, most of ocean, most ocean animals, but we can stick with marine mammals, I guess. When they die, they don't actually beach or wash ashore. Um, that's just a very, very tiny percentage. Mm -hmm. Most of them actually will sink those thousands of feet down into the deep sea and hit the deep sea floor. And once they're there, then they you know, of course, with life, it always finds a way. Um, it becomes this feeding bonanza down in the deep ocean. Should I just launch into well, my whale force field? <laughs> well, so, um, I, yeah, I had ended up, I ended up, I remembered seeing, because I, I, I'm obsessed with like Nautilus Live. And I oh remember. Oh my, who is not? I mean, Nautilus <laughs> Live, Okeanos, the Falcor, those are the three main boats that yeah. stream. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a science teacher when it's not summer. And, you know, sometimes when we're working on stuff, I just turn on Nautilus Live and, and let students watch it and stuff because it's just so yeah. interesting. And I remember seeing one of a, a whale skeleton. Yeah. And it was just shocking to see what became of it. And and I yeah, I guess if you can kind of walk through, I mean, what what happens? Because it's it's insane. So the 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 like background to all this is that the deep sea is in most places really food limited mm -hmm. um, because. Um, most life on the planet is centered around the sun and photosynthesis by plants. And of course, in the deep sea, there's no light. So it means there aren't any plants. Um, so most of the life in the deep ocean will actually rely on that, you know, life in the sea surface, whether it is phytoplankton, zooplankton, um, bits of poop from animals, mm -hmm. shelled, other larger animals. Basically, all of those or most of those will drift down into the depths at some point. And that's where most of the food will come from for animals in the deep sea. Hmm. Um, but so that means that, you know, there really isn't very much food to go around, unfortunately. Sure. So when so when something like a whale carcass, which is, of, as you just said, a massive hunk of flesh and carbon, mm -hmm. when that gets down into the deep sea, animals really do try to make the most of this, like essentially a feast. And so once it, once it hits the seafloor, 
um, animals from near and far will be able to sense that it's arrived either from vibrations like sound, um, mm. well, vibration slash sound, um, or via smell. Um, they'll be able to pick up that whale odor, whale oils <laughs> in the currents. And they'll come and basically start devouring the carcass. And so the, the whale fall through its lifetime on the seafloor, which can be, we think, hundreds of years. Oh, wow. Um, through that lifetime, it will go through four stages, usually, if it's, if it's left exposed. Stage one, the mobile scavenger stage. And so the first one is called the mobile scavenger stage, and that's when the whale has just arrived at the seafloor, the carcass, and all of these animals will come like big fish, um, hagfish, lobsters, uh, crabs, sharks, those types of big scavengers will come and tear away bits of the flesh. And it obviously depends on the size of the whale, state of the whale, but that stage can usually last for like months in some cases. Stage two, enrichment opportunist phase. And once all the flesh is removed, or most of it, um, we then move into the second phase, which is called the enrichment opportunist phase. And during this phase, because most of the flesh is gone and there's been all of this feeding activity, it means that there's a lot more, there's a lot of sloppy feeding. So animals mm -hmm. as they're eating, tiny bits of flesh will be left on the seafloor. Um, there'll also be lots of animals pooping. There'll be some predation going on. So maybe some bits of other animal carcasses that have been left. But a lot of that matter is much smaller in size. And so it means that a completely different set of animals will now move in to the carcass to be able to make the most of that smaller bits of mm -hmm. bits of bits of matter basically organic matter and they'll eat that so it'll be you know things like um different small crustaceans like amphipods and isopods uh tiny worms that live in the sediment um it'll just be a much a, a, quite a diverse fraction of animals but much smaller in size usually sure and because the bones become exposed you often at this point might get the moving in of Osidax, the bone-eating worm, um, oh. which will usually stay until the third phase. So the, uh, I'll just talk a little bit about Osidax, but Osidax is amazing. It's this um, deep sea worm, not just deep sea, but worm that mostly lives in the deep ocean and was only discovered in or described in 2004. Wow. And it's known to only live on the bones of dead animals in the <laughs> ocean. Um, and not necessarily, they've never been, I don't think they've ever been found on fish bones. So only hmm. like mammal bones, essentially. Weird. Um, or reptile bones. Um, but yeah, and they're absolutely beautiful. And what they do is they have this root structure that just like a plant, they have a root, a trunk, and sort of these red, bright red branches. Hmm. Um, and they burrow down with their roots into the bone. And from that are able to suck out the nutrients of the bone using acids to dissolve away the bone. Um, so they then usually come in and you end up with sometimes with bones that are sort of coated in this red fur. And that's all the worms making the most of that skeleton. Oh, wow. Stage three the sulfur-loving stage. 
Yeah. And then, so then we move into the third stage and the Ossadak stick around for a lot of this. Um, but this is a self-fulfilling stage or self-loving stage. Mm-hmm. And what happens is there are a lot of fats in the whale bones, especially in bigger whales. And those um, begin to be broken down. And sometimes that process takes place without oxygen being around. And it results in the formation of sulfides and methane mm-hmm. and as like a byproduct and as you just heard about the hydrothermal vents where animals use those chemicals via chemosynthesis to make their food the same thing happens at the whale carcass so you'll have animals that are able to thrive off of that hydrogen sulfide and there's methane um, that methane and use that to create their own food And they'll do that via really special bacteria that live within them. Mm -hmm. Or in some cases, you get the bacteria being free living and they form these amazing mats. Like if you Google some pictures of whale falls, there are some really beautiful ones that show these bright orange and white, like thick mats. Like they look like carpets, basically, all over the sediment and sometimes on the bones. And that's like grass and lots of animals will then come and eat that. And it forms the sort of basis of the food chain. And so again, in this third stage, it's like this completely, again, different set of animals that are able to move in and make the most of this whale carcass. And so then once that's all over, and by this point, you can often have reached like decades or a century in some cases of this whale carcass being there providing food for animals, providing, um, you know, places to shelter for animals. And sometimes in the fourth stage of the whale fall, which is called the reef stage, Mm -hmm. they also provide like something to attach to, a structure to attach to. And so just like you imagine like a coral reef, it's this rugose like structure. Um, It's the same with the whale fall. And a lot of animals in deep sea like to get up into the currents. So the currents are usually slowest right next to the seafloor because of all that friction. So if you're able to get a couple inches or even feet off the seafloor, then you're able to get into quicker currents and be able to filter food that's passing by out of the seawater. And so animals use the whale bones as that structure. So you'll find things like anemones, corals, sponges, and so on, attaching to those whale bones and using the bones like a reef, essentially. And so all in all, you know, we think of whales as these, like one whale as something that's quite insignificant, but actually has the ability to power um, this entire sort of ecosystem in the deep sea for decades. And that always astounds me. Yeah, there's something amazing about that, about you know, whales in general being such long-lived species. And then it's like, even, even once they're gone, exactly, you know, they're, they're able to just perpetuate so much, so much life, support so much life for so long. And that's, that's, I think the most amazing part. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought, you know, potentially a hundred years, if not more, (laughs) like that's just crazy. And so something that was really interesting that emerged um, a couple of years ago was that scientists reckon because there are certain deep sea animals that we know only live on whale coxes um, or especially live on whale coxes like the bone-eating worm, Mm -hmm. Osidax, there are 
sort of um, hypotheses that during whaling, when of course whale um, whales were harvested by the hundreds of thousands, yeah, and their populations decimated, and that of course then meant that less whales were dying as naturally and reaching the sea floor, mm. and because of that, it meant that the space between whale skeletons, like we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, how do animals get between yeah. these isolated habitats? It then meant that that space increased. And mm -hmm. so actually we think that perhaps there may have been species that went actually extinct because they weren't able to, for their larvae to get from one to the other to perpetuate this species. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I mean, that, that makes, that makes a sort of sense. I mean, I'm I'm still sitting here trying to think of, you know, if you have these things that are only living by, you know, like being on or in the skeleton, like where, okay, so where did they come from in the first place <laughs> to get there? That's just, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I, um, as you were talking, I, I did pull up a few pictures to try to look at some of the things that you were talking about. And um, like these bacterial mats, I mean, you're right. It looks like it looks like, you know, 1970s shag carpet <laughs> just coating a skeleton. Like it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So I think there's actually a, there's another type of worm that's found it on whale falls called Victoniella flucati. Mm -hmm. And it's named that because it looks exactly like a shag carpet. And there's a special <laughs> type of shag carpet called something like something related to flucati. And yeah, they, they attach to the bones and sort of hang down. And yeah, it looks like something you just sort of like, you know, run your hands through and like nestle against, except that it would be cold and writhing. And but, you know. <laughs> kind of unsettling feeling more than comforting. Yeah. <laughs> uh. We'll have, have a scenario where we're having to like nestle against the, the whole, this conversation's going really downhill. <laughs> So one of the one of the things that you know really strikes me looking at some of these pictures and stuff is, I mean, with the exception of like sharks and things that we kind of know what they look like and expect in and like octopi, a lot of these things are just really bizarre looking, really weirdly structured. And the the weird thing that I notice about a lot of them is they look really delicate. Like I mean, yeah. like that stuff does really look like you could run your fingers through it and it would be really delicate and and like fragile and it, it almost looks like you would be afraid to touch anything not because it's freaky looking but because you would be worried about breaking it and <laughs> maybe also because it's freaky and maybe also because it's freaky sure <laughs> but i mean and i've seen fish with like basically transparent tops of their heads with the eyes stick, like it's just yeah. yeah and and i mean from everything i think that you know in general the people would know about the deep sea other than that it's incredibly dark and we don't know a ton about it is that I mean, it's under a ton of water. It's it's yeah. a lot of pressure. So how is yeah. it that we have these delicate looking creatures in an, in an environment that looks like, for all intents and purposes, would be the opposite of hospitable? Well, so it is the opposite of hospitable to us, yeah. right? But not to them. They're perfectly adapted to live in these environments. And, you know, often, yes, they are strange looking, Mm -hmm. But I mean, to flip that on its head, 
perhaps we're the ones that strange like <laughs> some of these will be amongst the most common animals on the planet yeah and and yeah maybe we should change the way we perceive this environment <laughs> and everything that lives in it um but to answer your question you know i think you sort of hit on it during during the sort of prelude into this which is that they look really delicate and um and that's because they're uh essentially as close to water many of them as possible mm. um and that because that allows them to deal with the pressure you don't want to have air in your structure and you know really having um hard structures can be quite complicated with the pressure down there mm -hmm. so as close as you can get to what you're living in the better and so actually for some deep sea fish for instance um, this is quite a morbid story but i'll tell it anyway <laughs> no i didn't personally do this um and i wasn't on on a research cruise where this happened but i know a deep sea fish expert mm -hmm. um who you know he says that once they tried to cook one of their specimens mm -hmm. and of course when we cook fish you know they do shrink somewhat in size right yeah. the, the hunk of meat yeah um but with deep sea fish because there's so much water in their tissues to make them um, much more easily live down there. It meant that the piece of meat that they were cooking shriveled to almost nothing, hmm. um, just because the water content is so, so high. Um, but I mean, you, yeah, you also harped on a couple other examples, like the, the barrel eye fish, like it's perfectly adapted to looking up for silhouettes of prey above it where, um, that are silhouetted in the sun and then there's things like the tripod fish that yeah. sit on the sea floor if you don't know what that is definitely google it but sits on the sea floor on these elongated modified fins and it allows it to get up off the sea floor as we said where the current is slower yeah. and into the stronger currents so that they can catch passing particles and so i, re I really think you know there is this like just almost perfection about some of these animals like evolution really outdoes itself as they're just animals in the deep sea are so attuned with their environment it's really just spellbinding you know one one thing i am thinking about as you're saying that is i hear stories you know about one of the difficulties and and um you know photographing these fish for example if you're not in a submersible is that when you bring them up to the significantly yeah. less pressurized world that is the surface, they yeah. shape shift and like they look very yeah. different. And one example that is all over the internet is the blobfish. Is that yeah. really what it looks like? So I love that you said shape shift. Like that's <laughs> putting it so beautifully. <laughs> um, so I, I actually wasn't thinking about the blobfish, but the blobfish is a great example where you know, it needs that more fluid environment to sort of um, support its structure. And once in air, where mm -hmm. the pressure is much less and so on, it just kind of collapses on itself. Yeah. So those really famous pictures of what I think are quite cute, that cute pink blobfish, actually, it doesn't look anything like that in the deep sea. Um, but the one I was thinking more of, you know, when you sample deep sea fish, um, they unfortunately because of that massive change in pressure when you're bringing them to the sea surface 
many of them do have air in their bodies and mm -hmm. that of course expands as the pressure decreases sure and so i was thinking oh shapeshift that's quite that's quite you know a nice way to put it um but basically what happens is these fish expand oh. on their way up to the surface and it means you end up sometimes with fish that have essentially exploded because oh. yeah their their insides have just kind of given up or their eyes have like bugged out, oh, you know, no. it just, they end up looking <laughs> completely different. And you can see that, you know, in like long centuries ago when deep sea science started and all they had were trolls that they would throw over the back of the boat and just drag up whatever they could. Mm -hmm. um, it would result in animals that uh, when you look at a lot of the original descriptions, look nothing like what the actual animal looks like because that's all that they you know were able to all they had access to um and really like the technology is growing in leaps and bounds and is completely revolutionizing the way we um explore research and understand um our environments our deep sea environments um so as I as I'm sitting here thinking, the word deep is kind of a matter of perspective. I mean, for some people, deep is three feet, some it's <laughs> twelve feet. I mean, when we're talking deep sea, exactly when does like when does it become, you know, not just, you know, the moderate sea, but the, the deep sea and, and how deep is it? So I am not American, so I'm doing my best to like very quickly um do some calculations, but sure. um, our sort of running definition of the deep ocean is it sort of starts at around 200 meters, which is mm -hmm. about 650 feet. Okay. Um, and I mean, really, that is like a quite shallow at that depth. You usually still have sunlight um, to some degree, not a lot of it, but definitely there'll usually be some. Um, and yeah, that's just the beginning. The deep sea stretches all the way from 650 feet to 11,000 meters, wow. which is equal to 36,000 feet. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, this isn't like, as I, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, this is, this is a vast space. Like actually it's about 90, it's over 96% of all the habitable space on the planet. Wow. Um, when you think about it in that three dimensional way. So, you know, I think there's a lot we can learn about the deep ocean. We have explored so little of it. And really, I think it has the ability to provide solutions to some of the greatest challenges to face humankind, whether that is um, from a medical point of view, you know, one of the greatest mm -hmm. challenges is going to be antibiotic resistance. And already there are lots of teams looking for new antibiotics in the deep ocean. Um, but also there have been other um, medical innovations to come from the sea. One of the best treatments for breast cancer is from a marine sponge. Really? Uh, and so, yeah, and so not deep ocean, but, you know, the fact that um, many deep sea species have these because they they have to cope with such an ex extreme environment you know as they're on their as their day-to-day -day, it means they're perfectly adapted and a lot of the um compounds and traits and structures within their bodies could actually provide really useful compounds like genetic compounds for us but mm -hmm. also just um bio inspiration i mean there's 
glass sponges in the deep ocean. If you've never seen these, again, Google them. But glass sponges that their structures were used as models for more effective um, fiber optic cables. Really? Yeah. And so those are just like some really um, sort of obvious ways that the biodiversity in the deep ocean can potentially teach us a lot. Um, but also there's, you know, a lot to be learned in the deep ocean about potentially where we came from. It's thought that life originated in the in the deep sea, perhaps at a hydrothermal vent type environment. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there to learn about how life evolved on this planet as well as potentially on other planets. Um, but of course, then there are also things like other resources. Uh, you know, we fished the deep oceans for decades. Um, and potentially in the future are going to be getting genetic material from there, but also things like minerals. Um, mm -hmm. Sea mining is a, um, a growing industry. It hasn't started yet, but it's a growing industry. And, and again, like there is potential, given the vastness of the deep sea, perhaps to be able to um, help with some of the needs we may need as society. Yeah. No, that's 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 really that's really amazing. I number one, I did not know the thing about the sponges, which is uh, incredibly helpful because we're putting out a uh, uh, we're we're starting this mini series called Phylum, Ooh. where we're going through a bunch of the different ones, and, and we're just about to do one on sponges. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> so that'll awesome. be a helpful tidbit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's lots of like really like the one of my other favorite ones is that at Whale Falls, for instance, mm -hmm. um, because there are um, animals that that eat the fats at those at those um, whale falls, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're accustomed to working at their um, their optimum conditions are you know three degrees Celsius and um, really high pressures and so on. And so because again they have to cope with these extreme environments all the time that's where they function optimally and as a result of that um they've been able to use some of those enzymes i think it's enzymes to incorporate them into our washing powders so that we're hmm. able to wash our clothes at colder temperatures which is <laughs> something that we're trying to do given climate change yeah it's just the kind of stuff that you would never really think about as, you know, the, the, the lay person, I suppose. You you know, it never really be like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, the deep sea is helping me wash my clothes at a cold temperature. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, I think that there's definitely so much value to be gained from just doing this exploratory, pure science because you end up discovering things that... Yeah, you never thought you would, and then also, you know, have the potential to really help us. Now, if you've ever, and this is actually something we talked about on Twitter recently, if you've ever really watched any nature documentaries, there's probably something that you notice, and that is, um, it's usually like a white British dude narrating the whole thing, and um, so that's that's part of what we're about to talk about next. A, a little bit of the. Uh, um, need for diversification of that science communication and uh, recognition of indigenous peoples and, and ownership and sharing of information with locals. And um, another piece is um, there's this argument and it's it's sort of societal um, in, in terms of like priorities and things. But, uh, it, you know, it's the same argument that we see with like NASA, where 
people will often say, you know, if we don't know about the bottom of our ocean, why are we bothering figuring out Mars? Uh, if, if we have, you know, other dire things that need to be figured out on our planet, why are we doing some research that doesn't really seem to have a specific purpose? It seems like it's just out of intrigue and curiosity. We're going to talk about that. Coming from a developing country, a country where we don't have mm -hmm. the resources that others do, you know, for instance, like we've had two deep sea research cruises come to our waters, neither of which was locally led. Hmm. And it's been like a dream of mine, like absolute dream of mine to be able to lead or not just yeah. me, but to be able to have a locally led deep ocean research cruise in our own waters and to be able to understand what exists in our deep ocean so that we can better manage it. And, you know, if mm -hmm. I got a shot at having a having a ship with the right technology come into our waters so that we could potentially lead that. It's obviously because we don't get that opportunity ever going mm -hmm. to be used to be able to manage our waters. It's not just going to yeah. be like, let's yeah. go explore. I think, and I think <laughs> something that I, I mean, yeah, it's something that I'm grappling with a lot, especially talking to policymakers as well. You know, I, um, mm -hmm. one of my big parts of my work is trying to get science to inform policy. And I do that at places like, um, intergovernmental fora like the United mm -hmm. Nations, um, the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, uh, negotiations that have been happening for some years um, at the International Seabed Authority, which is a sort of UN-related organization that's responsible for seabed mineral management in international mm -hmm. waters. And, and in these places, you know, talking to policymakers, like, yes, of course, they appreciate biodiversity, but at the end of the day, you know, saving they want to know what how the environmental impacts from industry yeah. or you know how it's going to relate back to us as a species humans mm -hmm. and and i think it's sometimes irresponsible for science to just go out to answer any old question um mm -hmm. and i know this is con i said sometimes right because i know this is a controversial <laughs> opinion i mean i think you know that it would be much better if we um solicited what actually is needed um because for instance in the mining sphere you know they want to know how might mining affect the ecosystem services we rely on like um climate regulation like fisheries um and and they're less concerned about this beautiful sea cucumber or coral in the deep ocean and whether mm -hmm. that might go extinct um so yeah lots of questions to consider i definitely see both sides of the argument mm -hmm. um, but i think it's one that we a, a conversation that we need to be having more and more and more as um our need for resources and our push into these remote places gathers momentum yeah you know you bring up a good point and um you know, it's it's sort of like science has a real issue. I mean, society as a whole, but science you can definitely see it of <laughs> of it's almost like a scientific colonialism where yeah. you know people from certain countries go into other countries or developing countries, and you know the the way that you see even you know nature documentaries or something. Oh my god! Um, yes. Yep. You know, is it's so much like oh look at what we found, and you know nobody knows about this, and um, 
I mean, it's, I, I even I even get that feeling sometimes when you see like, oh, this new superfood, quinoa. And it's like, okay, people have been using that for forever. What what do you mean you, you discovered quinoa? Like yep. that that's ridiculous. Come on. Yep. But <laughs> <laughs> No, you're totally uh, right. And you know it unfortunately, so again, going back to our own experience in Trinidad and Tobago, we've they had these two um, well, so in the 1980s, there was a French um, expedition that came into our waters, discovered the most incredible methane seeps that were mm-hmm. just like, I mean, as far as the eye could see, like these giant mussel beds, just wow. millions of them, and all these tubers. I mean, like truly, like one of the most spectacular deep sea environments I've ever seen. And I'm not just saying that because I'm biased. <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously, this was before my time, but they unfortunately, you know, took all the samples and took all the knowledge. And really, we were left with nothing as a country. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, I went in my, in my deep sea biology course where I got interested. They were talking about the Barbados accretionary prism and all these seeps and the fact that they're related to oil and gas, which is what powers our economy in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, man, we must have these. We must have these in our waters. And it was like, you know, my little dream to be able to go and search for them. Um, and it wasn't, yeah, until 2014 when the Nautilus, um, which of course everyone knows and loves, mm-hmm. uh, reached out to local scientists and because they were going to be doing work in Grenada, deep ocean, Grenada's deep ocean, and said, you know, is there something that you'd like to potentially investigate? And, you know, it's through that like collaboration, right? They reached out to local scientists. We were able to get on board. It gave um, a handful of us the opportunity to be able to see these places for the first time, to explore new places. And now we have a much better understanding given that our oil and gas industry is pushing into deeper waters and actually the blocks where these methane seeps are have already been leased out to oil and gas contractors. And we have a better understanding of what's out there and as a result can take certain steps to again help manage and conserve these places. So, and that happens like all around the world. And I think in deep sea science, again, it's a little more pervasive because you literally fly into a country, drive straight to the port, get on the ship and drive out to sea. And then you never, hardly ever see land during that time. You never go back to land or hardly ever. And there's no reason to interact with the local um, the local community or any or citizens or anybody in that country for that matter. Um, and that's something that's been really pervasive for the last however many decades in deep sea science. But I think thankfully, literally, you know, in the last year, perhaps, Mm -hmm. this is starting to change in a very real way. And I think a lot of scientists are understanding that, hey, this isn't okay. We're actually contributing to this dependency on outside expertise rather than helping to create local expertise. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a right to go into other countries' waters and do science there. It's an absolute privilege and it should be treated as such. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw, I saw you founded an, an organization called uh, very cleverly, by the way, uh, species. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell me more about that? Sure. Um, so 
uh, yeah, myself and four friends um, got together in 2017 um, and decided to found species. Um, and basically, we did that for a couple of reasons. You know, in Trinidad Tobago, we aren't like the rest of the Caribbean in that we're really close to South America. As a result, we don't have those beautiful, idyllic beaches, especially in Trinidad. Um, we're close to the um, Orinoco outflow from South America, and it means our waters are a bit greener. Um, we just don't have a lot of the environments that the rest of the Caribbean islands have in Trinidad. We do in Tobago, mm -hmm. but as a result of that and as a result of i think also like um the history of our islands the many of the citizens or many people in trinidad Tobago are not um don't really have a, a great environment with the ocean um and because of that there and because of the fact that we rely on oil and gas rather than like tourism mm -hmm. um it means that we really just do, have not um, taken very good care of our environment as a country. Sure. And that is especially the case for our oceans. Um, our, up until recently, our legislation has been super lax and it's still in the process of being revamped, thankfully. Um, and yeah, management has just not, management and conservation has just not been a priority. And we think partly that's because of a lack of ocean literacy. And so we decided to come together and fund this non-found, not fund, I wish we could fund, um, <laughs> found this non-governmental organization um, called Species, which does marine research, advocacy, and education. And we're still a pretty young organization and all of us um, tend, to, and all of us have like other jobs. Um, but you know, there have been some really exciting projects to come out of it that, mm -hmm. and one now, which like, I definitely encourage everyone to look at it's being led by this incredible coral reef biologist called Anjanique Nace. And it's like the Catlin Seaview stuff that did the 360 degree reefs, um, mm. reef work. Like you, if you've seen the 360 reefs, it's probably Catlin Seaview and Ocean Agency. Okay. Um, and so she was able to, because of her time in Australia during her degree and her connections there, she was able to bring that technology, that state-of-the-art 360-degree photography, um, and then it gets incorporated into Google Street View and can be used on your cell phone um, or with VR goggles. And it really allows anyone, um, whether it is a child, um, a local adult, a tourist, whatever to view Tobago's underwater world and the reefs that are there without actually having to get into the water. And I think um, we're having a launch in uh, like two months, I think. Um, it was delayed because of COVID. And I really do think it's gonna transform the way that we as a country think about what exists beneath our waves. So oh, that's amazing. Yeah, watch the space, yeah. That's awesome. You know, one of the things that I think is so difficult about the ocean, um, you know, especially if, you know, if you're someone who lives, you know, mid-continent somewhere mm -hmm. uh, is, you know, feeling connected to it and, and not really realizing that what you're doing locally ends up in rivers and then ends up in the ocean. And so even if you are, you know, thousands of miles away from the ocean, you're probably likely still having some kind of impact on it. Yep. And it's, it's hard to see that. Yep. 
how how are humans impacting the deep sea yeah so exactly what you just spoke about is magnified or you know exaggerated however many times in the deep ocean because it's just this uh, to most people, a deep, dark place that is really far away, doesn't have much in it, um, which of course is, you know, not the case. Yes, it's deep and dark, but um, there's actually huge biodiversity there and it is absolutely essential to the functioning of our planet. And it's not that remote that we're not impacting it. So, you know, unfortunately, um, we've, for the last couple of centuries, we've been impacting the deep sea already. Um, we've had fishing happening, including benthic trawling in some really sensitive environments, um, including like deep sea coral reefs, um, which is really not great. Um, oil and gas extraction happens, you know, really mostly in the deep ocean. And of course, we're seeing that getting deeper and deeper. I think rigs now go down to 3000 meters or so. Wow. Um, our telecommunications are reliant on underwater cables and they crisscross all of our oceans and are absolutely essential to society. But of course, they're down there. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, I think one of the easiest ways to understand that we're having an impact and something that has been incredibly pervasive on all of the, um, during all of the research cruises that I've been on from the Marianas to the Atlantic Ocean, Mid-Atlantic Mid -Atlantic Ridge, to um, off of Antarctica, you know, we always find our trash. And often this is in places that no one has been before that moment. Um, so it's, again, a reminder that nowhere is out of our reach. And those, and trash is one of the easiest ways to see we're having an impact. And of course, there are types of pollution that we can't see, things like chemical pollution. There was a study that came out a couple of years ago that said that um, deep sea amphipods, these sort of cockroach-like crustaceans um, in some of the world's deepest trenches are full of PCBs. Wow. And that's, that's, there's no way to know that from just looking at that amphipod, right? And we don't know anything about its population or we know very little about its population. And so we have no idea whether that's causing some kind of an impact. Um, and then, of course, there are things like microplastics. We know that corals actually eat them and other animals ingest them. What impacts are all of these, um, you know, more insidious forms of pollution having? And, and of course, like climate change, it's affecting our entire planet. And the deep sea is absolutely not immune. Um, there's a study that came out, I think two studies that came out this year actually, showing that climate change, according to modeling, is already happening. We're already seeing warming of our deep oceans. We're already seeing oxygen loss. We're already seeing acidification in our deep oceans. And this is only going to accelerate given that we're carrying on business as usual. So we should begin to see some pretty profound changes. And of course, that's going to be exacerbated potentially by the fact that our resources um, were, as a population, global population, hungrier and hungrier, literally and metaphorically. Um, we're fishing deeper. We are looking for resources in deeper places like oil and gas, like metals, um, and so on. And it means that we're going to be using our deep ocean more. And unfortunately, like humankind has this like, you know, horrible 
um, sort of long-standing thing that when we explore somewhere, it's not very long after that we begin to exploit it. And I think that's going to be the exact same for the deep ocean. And the challenge is really, you know, trying to make sure that that if exploitation does occur, or rather when it does occur, we make sure that it's as responsible and restorative as possible. Yeah. Um, because I don't think we really have like room room to maneuver otherwise. In terms of in terms of that that conservation and and making sure that it remains protected and the biodiversity is protected. I mean, what what is your what is your take home message? Ooh, take home message for I mean, I think it's two, and it kind of stems from what we've already talked about. Like, I think we need more science. I think we need more faith in science, and science needs to be. Um, you know, as we've seen, for instance, with, unfortunately, the US during this COVID pandemic, um, we've seen that science wasn't upheld and that's had consequences. And I think yeah. it's no different for the environment. Um, so really, we need more exploration, more science. Science needs to be um, thought of as more as a more authoritative voice. But also, I think, you know, science will only go so far. And we need to, as scientists and other stakeholders, begin to think about and shape our work around what will actually help the planet and answering those questions that will, that those who are making decisions really need the answers for. Because unfortunately, I think that often there's a big mismatch there. And also there's a big mismatch in our like the ability for science to be communicated um, yeah. which I'm sure you're like extremely <laughs> aware of um, and not just to decision makers but to the public as well you know we need a population that is more that values these places more and, and I think unfortunately that lack of communication or poor communication really has a pretty um pretty big impact on that yeah yeah it's um I have figured out over the years how tricky it is sometimes to, you know, if you if you approach right away with the science and statistics and, you know, that that kind of information, sometimes, you know, you might you might bring some people over. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get people over unless you can figure out a way to connect it to their pocket. Exactly. And it's tricky. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's, you know, it's really something we've struggled with as a um humankind has struggled with is putting values on nature and the services that nature provides but ultimately it is something that we need to really get better at because that is how that is what talks money talks and we need to be able to speak that language and really it's it's pretty slow slow going so far and yeah. yes but i think a lot of policymakers and decision makers are just completely fed up hearing we need more science because that's mm -hmm what scientists always say. And of course it is especially true with the deep sea, but, um, but we need to go beyond, we need to step out of our little niches and our little comfortable boxes and begin to think about the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was something I saw the other day, somebody had posted on Twitter and I, I thought it was just a good point in it. It was saying something about how, you know, if there's anything that COVID hopefully has has taught people as a lesson uh, you know in in government and policy making and, and decision making it's that an ounce of 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of mitigation. Oh, I have not heard that, but I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just thought it was a really good point of, you know, maybe, just maybe, this global crisis has, has you know, an upside in in that respect of, of being able to point out, you know, this, this what we are putting forward right now to, to prevent further damage or, or to help in conservation, you know, is, is going to be substantially cheaper and worth far more than, than trying to do something about this post. Um, and, and maybe, maybe just maybe like, that'll be the way to speak to people's pockets a little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, when you think about the deep ocean, that is especially the case where there's, again, still so much we don't understand, but for the handful of deep sea species that we know anything about their life histories, like how, for instance, old they get to, we know that there are species in the deep sea that live to incredible ages from Greenland sharks that can be 400 years old mm -hmm. and take 150 years to reach sexual maturity um, to corals that are over 2,000 years old and over 4,000 years old for some black corals. And then even that there are glass sponges that are over 11,000 years old. And so, I mean, when you think about one animal being around for that amount of time and like the amount of things that have happened in humans' history since, you know, during that period, yeah. it's staggering. And, and what that tells us is that potentially because life in the deep sea is slow, recovery is going to be slow as well. And that exactly what you just said, that prevention really like, we don't know if mitigation or rather remediation is going to be possible in the deep mm -hmm. sea. So the less we have to mitigate, the better and the more we can prevent the better because we're, yeah, we're really not sure about the deep sea's ability to bounce back on timescales that are, that mean something to us humans, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Humanity has been on this planet for blip. We are but a speck of phytoplankton in, in the time that this planet has existed, that life on this planet has existed. We are an anomaly. Yet the impacts that we have made, the spread across the globe, the, the fact that you can go to the depths of the deepest trench in the ocean and find the bag for potato chips. We need to understand that gravity. That time for us, you know, we, we might think that we have so much time. And in fact, that's, that's how a lot of us live our lives. There's always going to be time. There's always going to be time. I can do this work now because I'll have time for family later. I can, I can do this now because I can take that trip, that vacation later. I can do this now because, and that's, that's kind of how we, how we live in a lot of ways. We, we push the important things to the side until it's too late. And if we can see that we do that 
in those other aspects of our life, then surely we can see that we do that in terms of the planet itself, the, the climate, these very real issues, these existential issues to, to other species and to ourselves. And at the core of a lot of these things are social injustices, inequities, unfair distributions. The deep sea seems so distant, just like the future seems so distant, yet we're impacting it, just like we're impacting our futures daily. Each and every one of us makes decisions that affect the future. You know, people talk about in time travel stories and movies that if you travel back in time, you don't want to do even the smallest little thing because it has the chance of affecting the future. But nobody stops to think that maybe what they're doing right now in the present is having that same sort of impact. It's time that we shift that perspective. It's time to protect the deep seas, the shallow seas, the land, the sky, the earth. Thank you everyone for listening today. This was by far one of my absolute favorite interviews that we have done on the show. If you are interested in supporting species or any of uh, these wonderful ocean conservation um, um, organizations or projects, um, definitely go to divaamon.com. That's D-I-V-A-A-M-O-N.com. And there's more about species and also lots and lots of videos of different um, submersible exploration things, stuff like Nautilus Live. And if you ever, if you haven't ever watched Nautilus Live, you like, you got to do it. It is just so cool. Um, it's, it's honestly one of those things that if you're working on something, you could just turn it on. The granted, you probably won't get anything done then, but it's, it's like almost better than watching like a nature documentary. Cause it's all in the moment and live. And you just, you hear the scientists who are on the research vessels, just geeking out and dropping pun after pun after pun. Like, Oh, we didn't find this one on porpoise. And it's just, um, it's an, it's a nice perspective. I got to say. If you want to support our organization, you can do that at patreon.com slash thewildlife or paypal.me slash thewildlife and become one of those esteemed awesome Fruity Loop people from the beginning of the episode that we listed off. And I'm so proud that I'm still able to do it in one breath. However, however, if we can get to the point where I cannot do it in one breath, I'm also going to be very, very happy because it greatly enables us to do more in terms of free educational content and community programs and and to get those different programs off the ground so we can start doing things like getting binoculars and field guides in the hands of those who might not be able to afford them or have access to them and, and getting funds to people who are having to take unpaid internships or need to cover a conference fee but can't and, and all of those other things. Next week, we're going to take a, a short break from whales. We're going to come back to that the week after. Next week, we're going to be doing an episode on nudibranchs. If you don't know what that is, oh my goodness, you are in for a treat. And we do that episode with The Nagging Naturalist. It's also a podcast, The Nagging Naturalist podcast. So it's another one of those uh, episodes where it's sort of crossover, ultimate crossover. Stay tuned.
Stay safe. Be happy. Thank you for listening. I'm Devin Boker, and this is The Wild Life. Thank you.